Please bow our heads with me one more time as we go to the Lord to ask his blessing on the public preaching of his word. Let's pray together. Oh Lord Christ, we admit freely to you that your word is a mystery to us until your spirit illumines its pages to our minds and opens our eyes to see the wonders of your glory on every page. So would you teach us now? Teach us to understand what your word means and how it applies, how it bears on our lives. Would give us a great appetite, a hunger to hear what you have to say. Would you tell us that your word is better, sweeter than the honey of the honeycomb and more valuable than silver and gold? So would you give us grace to see how that is true today? Would you give us a new taste, a new inner relish, a new delight, a new value to hearing your word? Would you tell us that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from your mouth? So would you feed us on the bread of life today? Watch over your word now, we pray, to perform it as you have promised. For Jesus' sake, amen. The procrastinator's motto, I'm just going to give you a second to figure that out. What do you think the procrastinator's motto is? What is the great question of the procrastinator? Why do today what we could put off till tomorrow? We all think like this to some extent about something or other in our lives. We put off doing what we're not good at. That's true of me in almost every home repair. I just put it off because I'm not good at it. We put off what we we fear or what just seems plain unpleasant or costly or difficult Of course, when we're young, deferring responsibility to the future seems rational because we've got so many tomorrows left. We've got a lot of tomorrows to do important stuff. There's always tomorrow, or so it seems. All too often, it takes the experience of getting injured or getting sick or getting old to convince us that we will not, in fact, live forever. Life in this world will not last forever. History's hourglass is running out. The last tomorrow is coming for us and for all people when it will be too late to recuperate whatever losses we incurred from our procrastination. And this is why Kohelet, the preacher of Ecclesiastes, counsels us in Ecclesiastes 12 to remember our Creator in the days of our youth. And then he writes a poetic meditation on human aging, the day of the Lord, and the end of life in this world as we know it. His point is that we should acknowledge God's rights over us 
and our accountability to him before it's too late. There is in the human heart a knowledge, suppressed though it may be, that one day I'm going to meet my maker. Conscience testifies. But human being and human nature being what it is, we try to silence the appeals and entreaties, the warnings and witnesses of our innate moral compass. But putting off preparation for the inevitable does not delay the inevitable itself. It's still coming. We'll read Ecclesiastes 12, 1 through 8, and then we'll ask five questions that will structure our time together in God's Word. Ecclesiastes 12, 1 through 8. Follow along in your own Bibles with me as I read. Ecclesiastes 12, 1 through 8. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened, and the clouds return after the rain, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble, and the strong men are bent, and the grinders cease because they are few, and those who look through the windows are dimmed, and the doors on the street are shut, when the sound of the grinding is low, and one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails, because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God. Who gave it? Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. We should acknowledge God's rights over us and our accountability to Him before it is too late. Five questions. The main command is remember. So, who must remember? That's our first question. Who? must remember. Well, in short, anybody. Anybody reading Ecclesiastes for any reason whatsoever? Whoever you are, if you're reading or hearing Ecclesiastes, then you're the one Kohelet is talking to. You, we, must remember. Even if you're not reading Ecclesiastes, but you're wrestling with the same kinds of questions Ecclesiastes is wrestling with. The meaning of a senseless world the reason for living when you know you're going to die, the frustration of life's unfairness, the elusiveness of satisfaction, the evanescence of pleasure, the disillusionments of work, the disenchantments of wealth, the never-ending demands of appetite, the bentness, the curvature, the scoliosis at the spine of reality. The not the way it's supposed to be-ness of everything. If you're thinking about that, if you've ever thought about that, 
If these things frustrate you, worry you, make you anxious, cause you stress, if they anger you, the answer is not for you to create your own solution or to construct a whole new reality for yourself that you will live in that reality and ignoring the reality that God has made or just build yourself a whole new self-concept that deconstructs what you don't like about yourself and about the world. The answer is not to willfully forget what your conscience testifies to be true. It's the opposite. The answer is not to willfully forget. The answer is remember. Second question, who must we remember? Who is it that we must remember? We're to remember God specifically as our creator. You are to remember God as your creator. God did not just create the world or things in the world. He did not just breathe out Scripture. He did not just create the cosmos and the elements as a habitat for a randomly generated human race. Nor did God only create those who admit that He created them. He created even those who deny that He created them. God created your individual being. God is the one who individuated you. He formed you. God decided who your parents would be, when you would be conceived and born, where you would live, even your identity as male or female. You are because God willed you to be and formed you. That's personal. You have a creator. And he's a person. God. He's an intelligent spirit. God is the ultimate content generator of the human race. Now, he did not create your sin. Remember Ecclesiastes 7.23, God made man upright, but they have sought out many devices. But the personal God personally created your personal being. God willed you into existence. He formed you in the womb, body and soul. You live because He said, let there be you. And there was you. We must remember the God of the Bible as our creator. Third, why must we be reminded to remember? Why must we be reminded to remember after all, being, being reminded to... Re- I don't like that. Do you like to be reminded to remember? It makes you feel irresponsible, doesn't it? It makes you feel like, hey, don't you trust me? Don't you think I am going to remember something? Come on, give me a little credit. 
I'll remember, will you? My dad had to remind me of everything when I was 16. Everything. I would have forgotten my head if it weren't screwed on. And I didn't like that when he did that. When I went away to college, my first week at college, I discovered that my dad was all of a sudden brilliant because he was telling me everything that I knew I needed to hear, I didn't want to hear, and I discovered, yep, I needed to hear it. But in our flesh, we don't like to be reminded to remember. But the reason we need to be reminded to remember is because this is exactly what the human mind is always trying to forget. We try to solve the riddle of a broken reality by positing that a good God did not create it. But that is a self-serving move. Because if we admit that we have a creator, we admit the corollary of accountability to the one who created us. If someone else created me, then I am not my own. After all, I own what I create. We put copyrights on our publications and patents on our inventions and name brands on our products to specify that we own the right to our own intellectual and material content. Yes, God created us. He stamped His own image on us, the image of God, to ensure that everyone would know that He is the one who created us, not we ourselves. He has a right to us, and we're obligated to Him. We're responsible to Him to acknowledge His rights over us as our Creator, our Owner, our Ruler, our Sustainer. So this command assumes our forgetfulness of God. And that forgetfulness is both willful and also natural. We want to forget that God created us so that we can enjoy life in this world as our own sinful nature wants to enjoy it without any restrictions except what self sees as beneficial. There's something about the human heart that is naturally disinclined to remember our Creator. And that something is sin, rebellion against God in His righteousness and even in His love. It's the active principle of rebelling against God, which we inherited from our first father, Adam. We inherited from Adam a natural bent to disobey God, to ignore Him, to forget Him, to try not to think about Him. But to remember God is not simply to recall His reality. It's to acknowledge His person and rule, to concede, to confess, to recognize, to affirm, to value His reality and His authority over all that He created, including me. This is what we're naturally disinclined to do. To admit, I am not my own. We don't want to credit him with creating us because we know that that admission implies obligation. And this is humanity's greatest problem in Romans 1 28. They did not see fit to acknowledge God. 
You can see this in your own heart, if you're honest. Whether you're a Christian or not. I see it in my heart, just like you see it in yours. Look at how intensely you will focus on going after the things you want and think you need in this world. Look at how easy it is for you to concentrate on your job at work. Look how motivated you are to earn money, to care for the things that you've bought with your money. Look how easy it is to spend time on your hobbies and your home projects, your chores, your entertainments, your sports, your movies. Look how easy it is for you to talk about those things with others. Now, compare that with how you feel about reading your Bible or praying when nobody's watching or listening or serving others in Christ when there's really nothing in it for you. This is not simply a modern problem. It's not an attention deficit disorder. Stephen Charnock noticed it of people in the 1600s. He said, There is not that natural vigor in the observance of God which we have in worldly business. When we see a liveliness in men and other things, change the scene into a notion towards God. How suddenly doth their vigor shrink. And their hearts freeze into sluggishness. How fleeting are we in divine meditation. How sleepy in spiritual exercises, but in other exercises, active. It's evident also in the distractions we have in His service. What man is there since the fall of Adam that served God one hour without many wanderings and unsuitable thoughts unfit for that service? Now, why is this? Why is it that we are so much more inclined to pursue the things of the world and so disinclined and sluggish when it comes to the things of our Creator God? Charnock answers, No reason of this can be rendered but the natural temper of our souls. Self is the great antichrist and anti-God in the world that sets itself above all that is called God. There's an eschatology for you. You want to know who Antichrist is? Look in the mirror. Look in your heart. There's Antichrist right there. Self is Antichrist. Self hates having to admit that it was created by God. He continues, What was the venom of the sin of Adam but to live independently of his Creator and to be a God to himself? But if this is what we are, if this natural anti-God temper is in our hearts because of the fall of mankind into voluntary sin and rebellion against God, if that's in our nature, then how can we even begin to remember our Creator? How do you even get started when it's totally against your nature to remember? When this forgetfulness is willful and natural. Listen once more to Stephen Charnock's answer. Since this practical atheism, this denial of the God we know exists, this denial of His rights over us, since this practical atheism is seated in nature, the change must be in our nature. 
You can't just turn over a new leaf. You can't just decide one day, you know what, I think I'm going to remember God. You, you don't get converted to Christianity like you convert to Islam or Buddhism. It's not just a decision. You have to have a change of your nature. Or you won't want to remember God like this. There must be a supernatural principle, Charnock says, before we can live a supernatural life. And so no practical atheist ever yet turned to God except that he was first turned by God. And not to acknowledge that, not to acknowledge that it works like that, is to deny God part of the honor of one of his greatest works. You're still a practical atheist if you deny that you need God to change your nature in order to remember him like this. God took away the sanctifying spirit from man, Charnock says, as a penalty for the first sin. And who can regain it but by his will and pleasure? Adam had God's spirit sanctifying him, keeping him holy. He rebelled against God. God took away his sanctifying spirit from Adam. He lost union with Christ, union with God. So who can restore it but he that removed that spirit? An atheist by nature can no more alter his own temper and engrave in in himself the divine nature than a rock can carve itself into the statue of a man. You can't remember God as your creator because you won't. You won't. Because you don't want to. It's that deep. In other words, if you have no inclination to remember God and Christ, then you must be born again. You need a new heart. You need a new self. You need a new nature recreated in Christ because your old sin nature is never going to acknowledge God. Your old sin nature doesn't repent. Your old sin nature is totally unrepentant. And so you need to ask God to give you a heart for Him, for His Son Jesus, to give you a new mind that wants to remember instead of trying to forget. And listen, sinner, God loves it. God loves to hear that prayer. He wants you to ask Him. Fourth, when must we remember our Creator? When must we remember our Creator? The text says, in the days of your youth. It is never too early to remember your Creator. But one day, it will be too late. You are never too young to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. Paul commended Timothy for starting from his youth, still sitting on his mom's lap, believing what his mom told him about Christ and the gospel from the Old Testament. Children, teens, listen to me. You will never regret remembering God in Christ from the earliest age. You'll never regret that. 
You will regret your sins. You'll regret your foolishness. You'll regret your laziness. You'll regret not responding to your parents' instruction and discipline in Christ with humility and obedience. You'll regret that. But there is no one in heaven today regretting how much they remembered God in Christ or how early they started acknowledging God as their creator and Christ Jesus as their savior because they admitted they're sinful and their forgetfulness of God is willful and rebellious and disobedient. No one in heaven is thinking, ah, if I only had sown a few more wild oats in my youth, I'd have felt far better about my life. No one thinks that. So children, teens, young adults, young married couples, remember your Creator now in your youth. While, you, while your passions run high, while your energy is still at its peak, while your mind and body are strong, while you can still avoid sinning in so many ways that are still foreign to you, remember Him so that you don't develop hard-to-break habits of speech and thought and attitude and action Remember that God created you for Himself. And so He loves you. And He wants you to love Him back. He wants you to understand that you are accountable to Him for how you use the life and strength that He gave you. He wants you to understand that His commands are good for you to obey. And it's bad for you to rebel. And here in verse 1, He wants you to understand that you will not always feel immortal and invincible. You should remember him, the text says, before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. That day's coming for you, teenager, as much as you want to put it off, as much as you don't want to think about it, that day's coming. He's talking here about the weakness of old age. Derek Kidner observed that when you're young, time has this great way of healing things, right? Your parents will sometimes tell you that. Not time, just give it some time. Give it time. Yeah, that's great counsel when you're young. But when you're old, it turns around on you. The older you get, the less true it becomes the time heals. The older you get, the more time wounds and actually makes it worse. Eventually, time robs you of your ability to enjoy life's pleasures. That's what he's talking about here. Barzillai the Gileadite, which is a name we don't say often, was a friend of David who helped David, when David was exiled from Jerusalem in Absalom's rebellion, David wanted Barzillai to come back to Jerusalem with him as a reward to live with him near the palace. But Barzillai said to David in 2 Samuel 19.35, basically, I ain't worth it. (laughs) I am this day 80 years old. Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats or what he drinks? Man, your lamb chops are going to be wasted on me. I don't have the chops for lamb chops. You're going to waste your money. You're going to waste your food. I can hardly even see straight. I can't hear. I'm going deaf. Can I still listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should I be an added burden to my Lord the King? 
if, if God blesses you with a long life, then you will outlive your ability to enjoy it because of the weakness of your body, not being able to handle the pleasures of your youth or the duties of serving God. You're getting old, no matter how young you are. So listen, when those years arrive, it's going to be too late to start remembering your Creator if you didn't start now. Because you will have lost the vigor to do anything about it. Or even the resolve. Charles Bridges said, If you will have God to pity and help you in evil days, then you must serve Him in your good days. It will be too late to begin the service of God when we have scarcely power to serve ourselves. How do you think you're going to start serving God at 80 or 85, or 70 or 75, when you start to feel that arthritis kick in, and your body doesn't recover, and you feel tired, and you're running out of energy. You've got to start now. You've got to remember your Creator, as the text says in verse 1, not only before those evil days come, but before those years even draw near. Don't risk it. Start now. When did Noah build the ark? Before the rain. And not just before. 120 years before the rain, Noah started building the ark. As we see in the next few verses of Ecclesiastes 12, the world is going to get just as dark in the future, as it got when the floods came. The preacher moves on now from talking about old age to waxing lyrical about the end of time itself, the end of the world, the end of humanity, the end of the human race, the end of life in this world as we know it. Verse 2, that's an ominous scene of darkness. It's actually apocalyptic, the darkening of sun, moon, and stars. That's prophetic imagery for final cosmic judgment from heaven. Jesus uses the same imagery in Matthew 24, 29 as the precursors to the coming of the Son of Man, the final gathering of all humanity for judgment. The clouds returning after rain appears. It appears to illustrate the final darkness of judgment day on the day of the Lord for all those who refuse to repent, to remember God while they were living. That storm isn't going to pass. Not for those who are unrepentant. This cosmos will come to a close. The lights in this night sky will all be snuffed out one day. A day like today, when you're not expecting it. When that happens, even the human guardians of life on earth are going to be paralyzed with fear. The greatest warriors and generals will be doubled over, face down with abject terror, begging for their lives. The private security detail of the rich will be of no use. The grinders, in verse 3, are women who grind or crush grain at the local mill for the daily baking of bread that was necessary in a hand-to-mouth culture like that. For them to quit grinding because there are few probably indicates the same kind of sudden disaster. Some of those women grinders aren't able to come into work anymore because they died. Jesus envisioned for the end times in Matthew 24, 41. He said, two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, the other one left. 
Luke 17, in Sodom, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. You're going to be working, you're going to be working, you're going to be working, you're going to be going to a wedding, you're going to be eating lunch, you're going to be doing your normal day-to-day, nine-to-five, and all of a sudden, it's going to be over. Everything, everything, even the grinding of grain for bread going to come to a grinding halt. Everything's going to stop. That image of looking out a window is usually reserved for disappointed widows looking in vain for their soldier husbands to come home. They see the commanding officer walk up the front sidewalk, ring the doorbell, and say, we regret to inform you. That's the image. Looking through that window. Looking through that lattice. Seeing that out the window. Ah. The conversation I didn't want is coming. My greatest fear coming true. That's what the last day will feel like for those who did not remember their creator in the days of their youth. Verse 4. The doors of the street are shut, which is probably the municipal gate doors leading into the street bazaar. It's the Mag Mile in Chicago. It's Randall Road in West Elgin or Grove Street right downtown here. It's where everybody did business, shopped, watched the parade go by. Everything about life in the city is stopping. And it gets eerily quiet when the sound of the grinding is low. This is again the milling or crushing of grain to make bread every day, necessary activity. But when that gets low and quiet, or stops, you're like, what's going on? I'm really used to that kind of normal humming sound. The factory went silent. What's going on? What's wrong? It's getting creepy. But in the prophets, the sound of the millstone stopping portends disaster and judgment. Jeremiah 25.10, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp because you have not obeyed my voice. Same thing is said of Babylon as the world system in rebelling against God. Revelation 18.22 And the sound of the harpists and musicians of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more and a craftsman of any craft will not be found in you anymore and the sound of the mill will not be heard in you anymore. And the light of the lamp will shine in you no more, and the voice of the bridegroom and the bride will be heard in you no more. Life as we know it in this world, all of our this-worldly callings and enjoyments and celebrations will stop. The daughters of song will be brought low. No more entertainments. In fact, the only song is the song of the mourners in the streets as they form part of humanity's funeral procession to its corporate grave. Verse 5 is hard to interpret, but the idea is that all the virility of nature and humanity will go out with a whimper when the Creator brings His world to an end and mankind to His eternal destiny. It's not going to be a fight. 
for those who do not remember their creator, it will be terrifying. Verse 6, the silver cord and the golden bowl may well be different parts of a lampstand or menorah that symbolize the tree of life. And if so, the meaning of the image is ironic since the symbol for the light of life is being destroyed. It's being snuffed out. No more lampstand. No more life. The picture shattering of the fountain might be a funeral image. Pictures were often shattered at funerals on purpose to symbolize how life is shattered by death. And of course, all this kind of foreign ancient imagery climaxes in the very familiar idea of verse 7, before the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. This guy's feeling this, isn't he? It's poetic. It's beautiful. But he feels what he's saying. And suddenly we're back in Genesis 2-7. The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath, the spirit of life. And the man became a living creature. Remember, God told Adam not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or else he'd die. Adam ate. And so God said to him in Genesis 3-19, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust. And to dust you will return. We will die because we did not remember to live under the word and authority of our Creator in the first place. Scripture testifies that God could call back His life breath from all humanity in one moment at any time and return us to the ground from which we came. Job 34, 14, and 15. If God should set His heart to it and gather to Himself His Spirit and His breath, not your spirit, not your breath, His, His, All flesh would perish together, and man would return to dust. That is how contingent you and I are. Death happens every day, and every time it is as God, at God's own command, taking back the breath that he gave us. Psalm 104, 29, when you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. And yet still, we fail to remember. We don't acknowledge God as our creator, sustainer, judge, king, ruler, as we ought. Psalm 90. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for all our days pass away under your wrath. Is that exactly what Ecclesiastes is telling you all our days passing away under God's wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. It's pathetic. Just breathe out one last time. Weakness. The years of our life are 70 or even if by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. And what is his question about all this in Psalm 90? What is his question? Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? We die every day. We see other people dying. We hear of it. We read of it every day. And yet, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? 
Answer, no one. No one. Stephen Charnock said, of all humanity, they imagine a God that plays with them. And though he threatens, doth it only to scare, but means not as he speaks. A God they fancy like themselves that would do as they would do and not be angry for what they count a light offense. Does that not explain how you have often felt about God's perspective on your sin and your perspective on death and why God has brought it into existence in the first place? But death is coming for each of us if the Lord tarries. And if he doesn't, then we will experience the end of the world as it's described here. Either way, we should remember our Creator. You may die before you thought you were going to die. You may outlive your ability to keep resisting God's judgments. You may procrastinate serving Him until you have no strength to do so. Your life in this world will soon come to a grinding halt one way or another. And this is not just the Old Testament truth. This is the New Testament truth. 1 Corinthians 7.31, the present form of this world is passing away. James 1.10, like a flower of the grass, so the rich man fades away in the midst of his pursuits. He doesn't even change what he's doing. He just keeps on keeping on, man. Making money, making money. Get that green. And all of a sudden, lights out. 1 Peter 4.7, the end of all things is at hand. It's near. 1 John 2.17, the world is passing away along with its desires. And this is why we should not love the world or the things of the world. You know, as Christians, we're all too quick to criticize unbelievers for their worldliness, but Charles Bridges warns us, let the most eminent saint of God look into it and see whether the real danger is not us living in the world, but the world living in us. Are you not tempted to go, oh, the, the, the danger is I just live in a world, such a bad world. It's so hard for me not to sin because the world's so bad. Is that really your main trouble? That you're in the world? Or is the real trouble that the world has actually gotten into you? And you like it more than you admit. For all these reasons, now, now is the time to remember your Creator, because you're not getting any younger. Now, how do we do that? How? How do you remember this Creator? If you ask God in the rest of His Word, God, what do you mean? How do you want me to remember you? I mean, if it's more than just, okay, I, I, I think about you sometimes... Oh, yeah, I'm a theist. I believe in God. I believe in creationism. But you certainly get the sense that Kohelet means far more than that by the word remember. How do we remember our Creator? Fifth and final question. Well, we can start by going back to what is perhaps Kohelet's own answer. 
Ecclesiastes 8, 12 to 13, how he models it for us. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know, I remember, that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him, but it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. I don't care what I see. I don't care how many sinners seem to prosper in their sin. I know something. I know that that's not going to prosper in the end because he doesn't fear God. And I know that I should fear God, even though it looks way more profitable in this world to not fear God. You also get the sense that he is wanting us to think in terms that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 5.10 for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body whether good or evil. None of us are getting out of that. You will give an account. God will not forget about you. God remembers. Do you remember? And how do you do this? Well, let's take a little tour of Scripture very briefly to see what does it mean when Scripture talks about remembering God. Well, it means we give him exclusive worship and obedience. Deuteronomy 8.11 Take care lest you forget the Lord your God. How? By not keeping his commandments. Yeah, you can say you're a theist all you want. You can go to the creation museum all you want. But if you don't obey God, you forgot. You forgot. Deuteronomy 8.18, you shall remember the Lord your God. Why? For it is he who gives you power to get wealth. And if you forget the Lord your God, how? And go after other gods and serve them and worship them. I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Because you would not obey, you forgot, you would not remember the voice of the Lord your God. So we give him exclusive worship and obedience. That's how you remember You don't worship what the world worships. You don't worship your feelings. You don't worship your assumptions or your inclinations about who you thought God should be or could be or wish, you, wish that he was. You give him worship. You, give him, you ascribe to him the glory that is due to his name. And you approach him as he wants to be approached, not as you would like to approach him. That's the first way we remember Another way, we express godly sorrow for sins against God. We express godly sorrow. That's how you remember him. Ezekiel 6, 9. Those of you who escape the coming disaster on Israel, Judah for their sin, those of you who, who escape will remember me among the nations where they are carried captive into the exile. They will remember me. How? What will they remember about God? You will remember me how I have been broken and grieved over their whoring heart that has departed from me. That's what you're going to remember, how you broke God's heart because of your sin. Ezekiel 
and they will be loathsome in their own sight for the evils they have done. When's the last time that you were loathsome in your sight, in your own sight, for the evils that you've done? When was the last time your heart was broken because of how God's heart was broken over your sin? Not just because how your sin broke your heart or made you feel bad or made somebody else that you love feel bad or made you look bad in front of other people that you want to impress, but no, your heart was broken because you broke God's heart by your sin. That is remembering God. We revere and rely on Him. Rather than fearing man, another way we remember our Creator, we revere and rely on Him rather than fearing and respecting man, what He can say of me, do of me, think of me, if I serve God in a way that man disapproves. Isaiah 57, 11, Whom did you dread and fear so that you did not remember me? You feared somebody else. You feared what man would say of you, do to you, think of you, more than you feared and respected and trusted what I can do for you and through you and with you if you trust me. That's remembering God. Have I not held my peace even for a long time and you did not fear me? You didn't remember to fear God more than you fear man. You didn't remember that displeasing God is more serious and consequential than displeasing man. And that pleasing God is more rewarding than pleasing man. That's what they forgot. Nehemiah 4.14, do not be afraid of them, the people who are opposing the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Remember the Lord. Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord. The opposite of being afraid of them is remembering the Lord, who is great and awesome and Fight for your brothers. To fear man is to forget God. To fear God is to remember God for all that he is and all that he can do. We take God and his word more seriously than man and his word. That's remembering God. You remember like that? Prayer for his glory and his people. Isaiah 62, 6. We've prayed this multiple times on Sunday nights. You who put the Lord in remembrance... You guys who remember the Lord, take no rest. You remember what God is like? You remember what he has promised? You remember what he loves and what he hates? Pray to him then like this. Take no rest and give him no rest until he makes Jerusalem a praise in all the earth. Work and pray for his church. That's how you remember him. For his glory and his people. We make grateful mention of his benefits to us. Isaiah 63, 11. I will recount, remember, the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all the Lord has granted us and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted to them according to his compassion and the abundance of his steadfast love. You thank him publicly, privately, corporately, individually. Prioritization of God's saving purposes among his people. Another way to remember You prioritize God's saving purposes among his people. Listen to this. Psalm 137.6. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. In other words, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. I will forever be thirsty 
curse me to everlasting thirst if I don't remember you by setting your city, your people, your purposes in this world above everything that I love in this world, my highest joy. Which, by the way, is probably not a thing. It's probably a person, a family member. What's your highest joy? Who is your highest joy? Do you set Jerusalem above that? Because that's what the Bible means by remembering God. Intentional thinking, meditating, drawing inferences and applications from the past for the present. Psalm 63, 6, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help when I remember. What do you mean? When I meditate. Not just when I memorize, not, what, not just when I recite, but when I think on what I am reciting in my mind, when I think about the implications, the applications, the meaning, the significance. Psalm 77, 11, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. What do you mean? I will ponder all your work. I will meditate on your mighty deeds. I will roll them around in my mind. And as I am sitting here trying to go to sleep, suffering a sleepless night, feeling like it's God himself who is keeping my eyelids open. I'm going to roll all of your mighty works around in my head and I will draw inferences of comfort for myself until I fall asleep. Remembering is intentional meditating, pondering, thinking on God's character, works, and ways. All this, and I'm sure more, is what Scripture means by remember your Creator. And of course, that may feel a little daunting to you. <laughs> That's what I got to do to remember Him? I got to do that all the time, every day? That's got to be characteristic of me? Yeah. Well, but I don't. I know. God knows. No matter how much I gratefully mention God's benefits, no matter how much I meditate on His character, works, and ways, no matter how much I worship and obey Him, no matter how much I, godly sorrow I express for my sins even, my contrition, my tears may forever flow, my zeal no respite know, all for sin cannot atone. God must save. God alone When could I possibly be done remembering my Creator? When we're like, okay, that's enough. I'm satisfied. I'm sure God's satisfied. I did it. I remembered. Even my best remembering of Him is still tainted with my sinful forgetfulness of Him. I'm very selective in what I remember. And therefore, the most important way we remember our Creator is to be reconciled to Him through the crucifixion, death, and resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ. 
Ecclesiastes 12.2, the end time judgment is described as the darkening of the sun, moon, and stars. The darkening of the sun, moon, and stars. When did that happen? When did that happen? It happened at the cross. In the middle of the day, noon to three, as Jesus was hanging there, taking all of God's wrath for all of the sins of all of his people. The darkness signified the judgment, the judicial anger, the wrath of God being poured out on Jesus for the sins of all God's people who turned from their sins to rely on Christ, to remember Jesus as a way of life. And when Peter preached at Pentecost, his sermon was on Joel 2, which includes, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. But that's what happened at the cross of Jesus. The sun went dark what does that mean? Is that just a little word association game that preachers like to play? Oh, sun went dark here, sun went dark there. Cool. No. Peter thinks the great day of judgment that was announced and forewarned in Ecclesiastes 12 was actually brought forward in history into the cross of Christ for all who trust in Jesus. Jesus endured our darkness for us. He endured the day of the Lord for us. The desolation described in Ecclesiastes 12 happened to Jesus in the place of all those who would ever trust in him. But to believe in Christ, we must be recreated already ourselves, as we talked about earlier. God must create us anew if we are to remember him as our creator. The whole reason is that my sinful heart will always be willfully forgetful of God. And therefore, Paul says, Colossians 3, we must put off the old self entirely. The old identity, put that off. Take off your old self with its practices and we put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. We remember our creator then by getting from him a new heart newly created by our Creator, a heart that is inclined to remember and not to forget. And this is God's promise to us in the new covenant. He loves this. He wants to do this for us. It's His idea to do this for us. He knew you needed it. I will give you a new heart. I will. I will. He's not playing games with you. He's promising it to you. I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put in you, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Then you will remember. I'll give you a mind to remember like I want you to, like you couldn't. For we are his workmanship, created, created, created anew in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This alone is the way that we can take heart in a world that is grinding to a halt. Because as those newly created in Christ, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient. Vanity of vanities. But the things that are unseen are eternal. 2 Corinthians 4. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity, he concludes. All things we see in this world, our bodies included, are temporal, fading, non-ultimate, and therefore tainted, with a touch of the absurd. 
We live only to die. What in the world? The world exists only to be recreated anew. There is a certain senselessness to the way this world is right now. You're right. You're right to see it. And there's also an absurdity to where it's headed. Are you telling me that God created all of this only to destroy it and create it anew? Yeah, that's what I'm telling you. That seems absurd. Yeah, it does. How am I supposed to live in a world like that? Remember your Creator. We remember that God Himself is the one who subjected creation to this futility in the first place, not in despair, not forever, but in hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The whole creation is still groaning right now. And you and I are groaning with it. Because God cursed the ground on account of our sin. But it will not be so forever. It won't stay like that. The ground will not stay cursed. Jesus' resurrection guarantees that. His resurrection body is the first fruits of the new creation. We groan along with creation too, even as Christians, but we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, like God redeemed Jesus' body. And that means our groaning is not despair. It's not despair. It's longing for an eternal future that's better than we can possibly imagine. It's so good the prophets and the apostles had trouble describing it. For those who are united to Christ by faith, Jesus has already endured our judgment day for us on the cross. And when we die or when Jesus returns, it will not be condemnation for you. It will not be darkness for you who trust in Christ. It will be salvation and light and life and love. It is in this hope that we are saved. And so as we wait, as we groan, and as we hope, let's make sure that we are remembering our Creator before it's too late. Let's pray together. Oh God, we have spent so much of our lives trying to avoid the eventuality of death. We've put off preparing for it. We've put off thinking about it. We don't want to talk about it. But the wisdom of your word counsels us that we had better before it's too late. And you've revealed these things to us not because you don't love us, but because you do. Because you want us to be ready. And you want us to be able to deal with you honestly for who you are and not just who we thought you were or think you should be. You have been honest with us. And we confess we have not been honest with ourselves about our sin or your world or your sovereignty or your holiness or your righteousness or your wrath or the all-sufficiency of your Son, Jesus Christ, or the need of a new heart to even believe in Him. So we pray for any here that do not have new hearts. Would you give a new heart? Give a new mind that would remember 
in all the ways that you love to be remembered. May we serve you, remember you with our strength and vigor so that when we come into our weakness and helplessness and sorrows and inabilities of our old age or our disease, we are sure that you have worked salvation for us and worked 